And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, June 2nd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Basurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, meet a guy who's been keeping things running on Capitol Hill for 50 years. Plus, how about evidence-based policymaking not just for you, but for Congress? Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, with return to office plans still uncertain for many agencies, House Republicans are trying to take matters into their own hands. A series of letters from leaders on the Oversight and Accountability Committee called on agencies to share more details of their telework and productivity levels. Committee Republicans weren't happy with what they said is outdated, limited data on telework from the Office of Personnel Management. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me now with the latest. And what exactly are these Republicans asking for and what did they actually say to the agencies, Drew? This is all coming down to Republicans repeatedly saying that telework has been worsening productivity and federal services. That is their concern. It's what led them to introduce the Show Up Act and just continue to try to press on a federal return to office. So now this next step is issuing this series of 25 letters to different agency heads. They're asking, okay, you know, if they think OPM can't provide the up-to-date data, maybe specific agencies can. They're looking for how many employees are telework eligible, how many employees are actually teleworking, how many days in the week, how many are actually, or what are the occupancy rates of federal buildings. So they're really looking like across the board here. They're also asking questions about, you know, locality pay, office holdings, collective bargaining bargaining agreements, and how all of that ties back to federal telework. Sounds like a really long letter. <laughs> it is quite a document, Tom. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is, or a lot of this data is stuff that OPM puts into an annual report where they collect that data from agencies. But I think that the concern here from Republicans is that they're saying, that data is outdated by the time that it's published by OPM, and also that recent OMB memo isn't going far enough in Republicans' mind to fix the problem. And so the committee Republicans decided at what point to send these letters. What was the what was the spark that sent these 25 dear colleague letters? It took a couple of months after this hearing that happened back in March with OPM Director Kieran Ahuja. During that hearing, there were a lot of concerns about the level of federal telework that was going on. They asked her a lot of questions, and they said that she basically wasn't able to provide the up-to-date information that they were looking for. So to sum up some of what they were saying during the hearing, Representative Nancy Mace from South Carolina summed up some of what was said at that hearing. You can or won't answer questions on how many federal employees work from home. You are the director of the Office of Personnel Management. I don't know how. You don't know the answer to this question. You can't even tell us the most basic data about how many federal employees worked from home before COVID, during COVID, and now after COVID. Of course, that was a statement more than a question for Ms. Ahuja. And so what Delaware data is out there from OPM and how old actually is it, Drew? As I mentioned, OPM does issue this annual report on telework that's been happening for over a decade now since the since it became a requirement as part of the Telework Enhancement Act back in 2010. The most recent data that they have contains data from fiscal 2021, and that report was issued in December 2022, so just about six months ago now. And in that report, they said 47% of the federal 
of the federal workforce was teleworking during fiscal 2021. But of course, that data is now two years old. So there is that concern. And that's kind of what Republicans are getting at now. A little bit more recently, there is data from the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, and that shows that about one-third of federal employees are still teleworking now. But even that is, you know, has its own gaps as well. It's self-reported, and that survey only gets about a 35% response rate. So it's not to the level of detail that Republicans are actually looking for here. Yeah, actually, 35% sample over a couple of million people is a highly projectable sample from statistical methods. I mean, look at Gallup. They tell what the country's thinking by talking to, you know, 1,000 people out of 360 million. So whatever. But is OPM responding? Are they changing their data collection methodologies or somehow speeding it up? Because if a letter says what's going on now, it seems like OPM could ask the same letter. I'm just thinking the way the Republicans are trying to think, why can't this be on some kind of an instantaneous dashboard maybe? I don't think that OPM has really said explicitly that there is a way to speed up the data or provide real-time data on teleworking employees. And that report that they do issue is it is fed by data coming directly from agencies. So what Republicans are asking for, it does exist. It's just not as up-to-date as they would like. But OPM does have plans to make at least the data a little bit more granular. So the 2022 Consolidated Appropriations Act required OPM to start reporting also on telework successes, best practices, lessons learned from the pandemic. And all of that data is going to be included in next year's telework report. There also, there's no timeline on it yet, but they're also planning to include more requirements for agencies to talk about or to report to them instances and hours of remote work per pay period. So a little bit more in the weeds, detailed data that they're going to be pulling together in that report. But in the meantime, they've got to answer the 25 letters, and then they can get to the OPM new methodology, <laughs> I guess. Now, what, I mean, the real topic is telework or how much of it is going on. What's the latest that you're hearing? I mean, Veterans Affairs put a stake in the ground with headquarters, not with the entire nation, for the people that are not already clinically, you know, in their sites for doing medicine, but maybe VBA and the cemeteries and so forth, policy shops, public affairs. And they said, as our Jory Heckman reported last week, five days out of each 10-day pay period. That's what you got to be in for a limited number. Again, in the, you know, the Washington, I guess, the vicinity of Vermont Avenue in Washington, D.C. Have you heard anything like that from other agencies yet? A lot of that is still kind of a big question mark, Tom. Agencies just about two weeks ago now had to give their initial reports back to OMB after that memo that OMB issued back in April. That was going to look at their work environment plans. So, you know, how well is productivity going? Where might they make plans to adjust the level of telework? And that OMB memo, of course, did ask agencies to start increasing meaningful in-person work. And it was specifically targeted at headquarters offices, which is, I believe, why the VA is responding to this just at their headquarters office for now. So a lot of that is still undetermined. And OMB has those reports from agencies currently, and they're reviewing them. So we might see some more answers trickle in as in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, some big eyes looking over OPM's shoulders in the meantime. And is there any evidence that the telework policies or telework practices are changing along management versus bargaining unit lines? That's something that isn't necessarily known at this point, but, you know, that is 
something that unions have been talking about a little bit with the collective bargaining agreements. Sure. Just based on my interviews, which tend to be at the managerial level, I've seen a lot of people actually returning and talking from their offices. On the other hand, I've seen people put on a jacket and tie with a virtual background of the office, so you really don't know where they are. I think a lot of it has to do with geography. My sense is that the people in the DMV might be more in the office than people out beyond the DMV, where the bulk of federal employees actually work, and those that would otherwise be in an office, I think, are more teleworking. Yeah, no, it, it is a big question. And, you know, we don't have a specific number. It's hard to kind of grasp that for the federal workforce overall. But the bottom line here, at least from the Biden administration's perspective, is that they're focused more on the productivity angle and, you know, not necessarily where people are working, but how well they're working and how well they're meeting mission. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, what about evidence-based policymaking, not just for you, but for Congress itself? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A bipartisan resolution aims to bring more evidence-based policymaking to Congress. It would establish a commission to, in the words of its sponsors, facilitate the integration of robust data in the legislative process. Here with more about what the what would do, one of the main backers of the resolution, Washington Congressman Derek Kilmer. Congressman Kilmer, good to have you back. Good to be back with you, Tom. And tell us exactly what you envision for a commission to establish evidence-based policymaking on the Hill. Let's just start with the problem statement, and that's that we got to get government working better for the folks I represent and around the country. And I think there's an understanding that Congress makes better policy when it uses sound evidence and when it uses data that can inform how we design policy, how we measure their impacts, how we improve outcomes for the American people. And in a nutshell, that's really the rationale behind this congressional evidence-based policymaking resolution, to make government work better and hopefully to restore public trust. This was done a few years back for the executive branch. And part of the work of the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress was looking at evidence-based policymaking, specifically within the legislative branch. And one of the recommendations was, hey, we should replicate what happened in the executive branch because the legislative branch, again, will make better policy if it uses evidence and data better. Well, let me ask about an example. One of the debt ceiling deal concerns has to do with people, should they work or not work, or how old should they be when they work with respect to getting Medicare and Medicaid services. That seems like a prime example of, well, what are the effects of working or not working? What do we know about the population that has served that age group by these programs? That kind of thing. So there are all sorts of examples where if we use evidence, if we use data, Congress as an institution can make better decisions. You know, I'll give you just one example germane to our offices. You know, right now, there are 435 members of Congress who do casework for their constituents. Right now, there is not a means through which the calls and concerns that we get, whether there be a problem with the VA or the IRS or Social Security, there's no means through which that information in an anonymized way gets aggregated to identify problems where you might say like, wow, it turns out, you know, a hundred different offices are identifying the same problem within the Veterans Administration. Using data, you know, provides us with an avenue for identifying problems, systemic issues 
that we can then, through smart public policy, solve. You know, you mentioned the discussion around the debt ceiling. Thankfully, Medicare and Medicaid aren't impacted under this proposal. There has been a discussion around SNAP benefits, around food assistance to folks. And we just saw data come out from the Congressional Budget Office saying, actually, in the net, more people will have access to SNAP based on some of the waivers that were provided for folks like veterans and Americans who are experiencing homelessness. There is certainly an impact because of the expansion of work requirements for those up to 54 years of age. Right now, it's up to 49 years of age. So there are folks between 49 and 54 that will be impacted by those work requirements. But there's also people who are going to benefit, veterans and folks experiencing homelessness and folks directly out of the foster care system who will get food assistance. And that type of data analytics done by the Congressional Budget Office again, is a great example of how we can inform smart public policymaking. Maybe the most important challenge to an effort like this would be simply the meatware. That is for people to accept the fact that sometimes the data might run against the shibboleths that they've been clinging to politically. And that goes for both sides. Often what's wrong in Congress is it's what we think we know, not necessarily what we know to be true. And there's a real, I think, opportunity to make decisions that are informed by the best available data and research. And that means, you know, frankly, when it comes to what this means for the American people, it means we can more effectively target resources and efforts to where they're most needed and can have the most impact, whether it's education or healthcare or economic development or any other policy area, using evidence can help us to design policies that really impact and improve people's lives. We're speaking with Democratic Congressman Derek Kilmer, who represents Washington's 6th District. And you envision a number of things that this commission could in turn consider should Congress agree to create it. And a lot of them are, as you mentioned, having, say, a chief data officer for Congress, some real operational changes that would underpin the ability for members to have the data they need. Well, this is what we saw coming out of the Evidence Act that applied to federal agencies. You know, we've seen since the passage of the Evidence Act a pretty remarkable transformation in terms of how federal agencies approach decision-making. That law emphasized the necessity of data and evidence in informing policy decisions. And it gives, to your point, it gives agencies a mandate to invest in high quality and objective research and to use that research in setting their agendas to have chief data officers to sort of manage that data. Certainly, there are still areas where we can improve. But I think that's an example of you know, where we've made some significant strides in the right direction. And, you know, as someone who's spent the last four years working on trying to figure out how we strengthen Congress and improve Congress as an institution, replicating that and having the legislative branch have access to data, have access to top-notch research, and to be able to channel that information into better public policy making, I think is a super example of how the institution can make better decisions for the American people. Yeah, it sounds like this could really operate on basically the two lenses that Congress often sees the world through. One is constituent services, what's going on actually in my district and what might rise to the issue of attention. And then the oversight with the ability to really understand what's happening at a data level, federal agencies and program outcomes. A hundred percent, right? So this is an area that historically, and certainly for the last several years, Congress has too often punted to the executive branch. And I'm someone who believes that the people's house, the founders made, you know, under Article One, made the legislative branch Article One for a reason, the first branch of government. And I think it's very important that the first branch of government be empowered to make better decisions for our constituents. 
this to me is really a no-brainer, and it's why you've seen bipartisan support for this, Democrats and Republicans, who have identified this as a real opportunity for the institution to make better decisions, to do a better job of holding agencies accountable, to your point around oversight, to do a better job of making decisions that are grounded in evidence and in data so that we can do a better job of making good decisions for our constituents. So that's really this proposal in a nutshell, and it's why you've seen such support for it and why you've seen all sorts of organizations, whether it be the Bipartisan Policy Center or Results for America or USA Facts or other uh, entities have endorsed this proposal because they think it's a good idea. Is there a generational effect to acceptance of this in Congress because you're kind of on the younger side of those members that, you know, see things like this? Some of the old timers, you know, might say, well, why do I need to bother with all this newfangled stuff? We've had hearings where members, maybe more in the Senate than in the House, really don't understand the technologies that are extant and in common use throughout the population already. I think most of my colleagues, whether they be Democrat or Republican, whether they be on the younger side or on the older side, understand that as an institution, we need to make good decisions for our constituents. And one of the problems we've seen over the last really 30 years has been sort of a self-lobotomization where a lot of the brains of the institution have eroded. And that has been evidenced by an erosion of oversight capacity. It's been evidenced by the decline in committee staff, both in real number terms and in terms of being able to have folks with longer tenure who have expertise that we can hang on to. But it also is evidence with regard to the capacity of the institution to use good data to make smart decisions. And I think this is one of those things where you know, this has the capacity to lead to much better decision making. And I think that doesn't just serve every member of the House of Representatives. It serves every American if this institution can function better and make better decisions. And what happens next for the resolution? You've introduced it just last week. And any chance that it will come to some kind of a vote or an agreement? Well, that's the plan. The bill was referred to the House Administration Committee. I serve on that committee and have already flagged it for the committee's leadership. I think this is the type of thing that could serve as a suspension bill, you know, largely non-controversial, as was the Evidence Act back in 2018, where you saw, you know, Speaker Ryan and Senator Patty Murray lead the charge on that. I had a piece of that bill that I led the charge on. That bill was consequential and thankfully moved pretty smoothly through the Congress. Democratic Congressman Derek Kilmer represents Washington's 6th District. As always, thanks so much for joining me. You bet. Thanks a bunch, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about the evidence-based policymaking resolution at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Air Force flies right over two obstacles to digital transformation. But first... Meet a guy who's been keeping things running on Capitol Hill for 50 years. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Kenny here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Few people can boast 50 years of federal service, but my next guest started as a page in Congress in 1972, and he never left. He's no longer a page, of course. Now he's the building services coordinator for the House office buildings as an employee of the architect of the Capitol. I spoke at length with Donnie Ward, and here's an excerpt. The superintendent's office, which is a division of the architect of the Capitol, 
the architect of the Capitol has over 2,500 employees whose job is basically to help maintain and upkeep all the physical facilities on the Hill, all the buildings, um, including the um, Library of Congress, the Supreme Court, um, the House side of the Capitol, the Senate side of the Capitol, the Capitol building itself, the Botanical Gardens, the grounds crew, as well as the power plant. So we have employees around the clock maintaining the structure of the building. And you might want to relate the degree of use these buildings get, unless you've been in one of these buildings, and I have, I've been in all of them once or twice over the years at least, the the level of activity in them is just amazing, and it's quite a long workday that they are busy, correct? Oh, yes, indeed. There's always something going on. We have the members, number one, um, conducting their official business for Congress, and then um, we will sometime have outside organizations that will come in and have receptions in various buildings like the committee rooms and the banquet rooms. So we're basically trying to keep everyone happy and make sure everything is working well for everyone that's there. And you are around and near and close to the members periodically, time to time in your daily work. Have you noticed the phenomenon that bad as they may sound politically in cable news and in news accounts, I've never met one who's not personally extremely cordial and really good at small and large talk. Well, most of the members are very concerned about how they are uh, appearing to the public, and they're very kind to everyone they, they come in contact with. They never know who you're talking to, number one, so you have to be at your best at all times. Every now and then you may find a member that may not be as pleasant as they could be, but you have to realize we're all human beings. We all have bad days sometimes, so, you know, you have to deal with that. We're speaking with Donnie Ward. He is Building Services Coordinator for the House Office Buildings and the Office of the Architect of the Capitol, and a 50-year employee in one form or another for Congress. And what was it like for a black page in 1972 when you, when you arrived? Well, it was quite an honor, number one, and that's a long, long story how all that came about. It started for me in the fifth grade when I was 11 years old. My teacher, Mrs. Alma Carter, we were having class, and we were doing our ge geography studies that day. And there was a chapter on Washington, D.C., and they had all these little pictures on the various buildings and little notes on what goes on in the buildings. And when it came to the Capitol, because we were children, I guess the author decided to have something in the book that would appeal to the kids at that time. And there was a couple of paragraphs on the functions of Capitol pages. And when I read about them, it was like a light went off in me. I was simply fascinated by them. And I kept telling myself, that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a page boy for Congress. Now, I'm just 11 years old. No one in my family was politically involved other than just going to the voting booth to vote for various situations. No one had heard of page boys. So I was simply consumed with learning about the page program. I would go to the libraries and do research on them and to find out what they did and how they managed their day. And then around that time, I think in 1970, 71, I was working at a more upscale men's barber service in Newport News called Bob Smith's Barber Service in the Warwick Shopping Center. I was a shoeshine boy there also. I met a man by the name of John Fitzgerald who was 
on the city council. And I was shot in his shoes. We were having a nice little conversation. And I was telling him of my interest in going to Washington and being a page boy. He said, oh, Donnie, that's interesting. I said, um, would you happen to know Congressman Downing? He said, yes, I do. As a matter of fact, I'm going to see him sometime this week. I said, would you mind telling him about me and giving me his address so I can write him? He said, I certainly will, Donald. So he would come to D.C. periodically and talk to the congressman about me. And he gave me his address, and for, I wrote him a letter when I was 14, my first letter. And he wrote me back and told me, Donald, it was a pleasure to hear from you. And page program starts at 16. But in the meantime, keep your grades up and keep me abreast of all your activities you're doing in the community. So for two years, I remained faithful, writing Congressman Downing and keeping him abreast of all my grades, all my club activities, all my involvements in the city. And um, when I turned 16 at 12 o'clock midnight, I sat down on my, at my desk and said, Congressman Downing, I just turned 16 years old, and I'm ready to come to Washington and be your page boy. Well, I wrote the letter in April of 72. So and, then you uh, went to Washington. Yes, in 1972, I was selected over several hundred young men to be his page boy, and I was the first black page boy. And I was honored that he took the chance on me, and I realized at that time what an awesome responsibility had been handed to me. And I knew that the world would be watching me. Number one, I knew I had to dot my I's and cross my T's, because at that time, the doors were just beginning to open for minorities in all aspects of government and the world. And I really wanted to be an example for my family, for my for my people, and for, for the whole nation, as a matter of fact. As I worked on the House floor during the House sessions, I also served as the House Democratic flag page. Now, all the flags that you see that are flown, that are, you know, like schools and churches and places like that, those flags are sent to those homes or organizations by the members of Congress. And each one of those flags are flown over the Capitol for 15 or 20 seconds just to say they've been flown as an honor. And then they're delivered back to the member. And my job was to go downstairs with this huge truck, flat truck, around 12 o'clock every day and sign out all of the Democratic members' flags. And I, in turn, would deliver those flags throughout the Hill Complex in the Rayburn Building, Longworth Building, or the Cannon Building. So I got plenty of exercise throughout <laughs> that experience. It yeah. was really great. And at what point did you make the transition to regular federal employee of the executive branch in the architect of the Capitol? The Dwight David Eisenhower nuclear battleship had just been commissioned, had just been finished, completed at the shipyard, and my congressman, along with his staff, was invited to go down to the commissioning of that ship. And it was really exciting. And while I'm there, I'm, I'm, I met this lady by the name of Mrs. Bates, and we're just talking, having a great time, because his, her son, James, was a fellow page boy, so I knew him from school. So we're just talking, having a great time. I'm just being myself, just having a good time. And when we get back to D.C. after the weekend, my congressman's AA calls me into the office and he said, Donnie, do you remember Mrs. Bates, who you were speaking to this weekend? I said, well, yes, I do. I enjoyed meeting her and talking with her. He said, well, she just happens to be the wife of the superintendent of Capitol Hill. I didn't know what the superintendent was, but I said, well, that's wonderful. God bless her. Congratulations. And um, he said, well, she said, well, she was very impressed with you. 
and she thinks you would be a great asset to her husband's organization. I said, really? Okay, wonderful. Thank you. So basically, he was saying, well, they have a position for you if you want to take it. So wow. go over and meet Mr. Bates and just see what it's all about. So I did the following day, and we talked about it. I enjoyed meeting with him and talk with him. And sure enough, that one conversation led to my position at that time as a service assistant in the house superintendent's office. And my position as a service assistant has now been upgraded as a service coordinator, but we're just basically dealing with service. Sure. And when I get to office, I, I come in, I log into my computer, and we take the phone calls from the members of Congress and the staffers, whatever problem they're having, like, well, Donnie, I have a, my fluorescent light is out in my office, or I need a paint job, or, you know, there's a short in one of the outlets. I need some carpentry work done. All of those things come to my office, and we, in turn, will lock those requests in our computer system, and they will be sent to the various shops that handle those responsibilities, and we basically try to take care of those things as quickly as possible. Wow, and in all the years you've been there, decades really, any particular members stand out for you? Well, first and foremost is my member, Congressman, Congressman Thomason Downey. He was a great man. He has since passed on. He was so intelligent and so kind and so generous, and he just showed compassion to everyone, and he was very serious about his job. And he took care of his constituency. He really did. And each year around Christmas time, Congressman Downing would have this huge Christmas party in the Cannon Caucus Room or one of the committees. And what I love about Congressman Downing that taught me so much about how you treat people is that he would remember everyone that helped him do something in the office no matter who you were, if you were an ambassador or if you were a fellow member of Congress or if you were a laborer or a carpenter that came to his office and hung pictures, he would make sure that you would get a personal engraved invitation to his party each year. Yeah, you don't it forget that. It was the height of the Christmas season. Oh, we had some wonderful times, I'm telling you. We had this huge Christmas tree made of styrofoam. And we would have it would be decorated with shrimp all around for decorations. It was fantastic. It was a great time. It was a wonderful man. All right. And what about recent years? What what are things like there? As as maybe it's gotten a little less cordial, a little less politics yeah. aside after hours, that kind of thing. Yeah, Capitol Hill has changed over the years. It's not as warm and friendly as it once was years ago. It's it's very. How should I say it? It's oh, it's more. I should, it, it's always been focused, but it's just not as, oh, the good times are not to be had like we had years ago. Things are much more scrutinized now. They, they're weighing things very carefully. Should I do this? Should I do that? You know, how did this look on the outside? So it has changed somewhat. But we, we still manage to keep a smile going every now and then. <laughs> Donnie Ward is Building Services Coordinator for the House Office Buildings in the Office of the Architect of the Capitol. There's much more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Air Force flies right over to obstacles to digital transformation. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Just a few years ago, the Air Force faced two major challenges to technology modernization, people and money. When Lauren Nelsenberger, the Air Force's chief information officer, arrived in 2020, she made it her goal to solve these two problems. Nelsenberger, whose last day on the job is today, tells executive editor Jason Miller why the Air Force not only overcame the budget and personnel obstacles, but is well on its way to digital transformation itself. I will share that uh, coming into this job, there were two kind of really big obstacles that I had to overcome beyond just really wanting to make a difference and and really digitally transform the enterprise. First was I had to completely rebuild the team. And just, you know, we had had a couple of open positions for a little while. We had a very long period with an acting CIO. There were budget cuts going on. You know, IT was still kind of the bill payer for things. It was not a ripe time to come in and just kind of, you know, light the rocket and go. Um, and so really the, the first order of business was how do I really rebuild this team? And so I'm pretty excited with the folks that are in those roles now. And um, just the team is getting better and better and even more solid at that broader uh, DAF coalition. So that's one. And the second piece was rebuilding that budget. I remember uh, telling our uh, secretary, uh, J.R. Roth at the time, oh my goodness, this IT budget is even worse than I thought. We were starting the year about $250 million in the red every single year and um, had to get pretty creative with cash flowing and largely uh, just kind of making ends meet and still kind of digging out of the hole each year, but still trying to move things forward. And so, um, you know, so kind of a tough fiscal situation. So one of the first goals that I set was a fiscal year 24 budget that works. And it does take a couple of years to get there. 23 is way better than 22. We actually are, are fairly healthy in 23. We've been able to kick off some pretty solid progress in ICAM and Zero Trust and continue to grow our cloud presence and, and just solve problems across the enterprise. So that is goodness. But in 24, that's when we really uh, have the right investments moving forward that'll help us get out of some crushing tech debt and that will help us move forward to become much more cyber secure, much more resilient uh, to get better performance and to really be able to fight the way that we should in a digital environment. And a lot of that investment kicks off in 24. If it comes through the way that it is expected to, it will be pretty sizable and the team is raring to go. Lots of planning, lots of finalizing plans, testing con ops, but folks are pretty excited about that investment. So 250 million in the red every year to just starting the year. How did that happen? I mean, I know you weren't there, but or, or maybe the better question is, how'd you get out of it? Because I, I know you and I have talked in the past about some of your big priorities and and, and those, for instance, in, included in, in the past, consolidating, better managing enterprise license for the cloud or software as a service. So that that's maybe maybe where I'd ask you to start off is you started looking at those licenses and said, OK, can we have one or four, but not 40 or however many? Yeah, so some of the digging out was finding sources of funds because we're not talking about frivolous things. You know, we're talking about, you know, it's very expensive to run Office 365. We pay the central license cost to update our routers and switches. You can't just not update, you know, you can't just shut off your routers and switches. You can't shut off your long haul comm. We're talking about things that really have to be paid. And so a lot of it was creative finance and end of year funding. And the thing with IT is, you know, you can 
obligate very quickly in September. We always could take year-end funds and, and largely dig ourselves out with it, but it made it a lot harder to manage throughout the rest of the year. And there was a year or two there where things got really, really tight. And that, you know, I used to call it faith-based budgeting where, you know, you, you would pray and the manna would probably fall from heaven in August and September. But there are a couple of, there are a couple of years there where that manna did not come. And so, you know, then you kind of start the next year also in the hole. So really it's, you know, we got a lot of priorities. we got a lot of broken portfolios. It's really trying to just make sure that those most important things happen. And there were things that we had to stop doing. And, you know, and unfortunately that means that, that those transformation programs did not go forward as fast as we wanted them to, or have stopped, but, you know, we had to, we had to make decisions, tough decisions in places. And we did. There were places also that we could save a lot of money. We renegotiated a number of enterprise jails where we saved very large amounts of money. This year, we renegotiated some of our Office 365 licenses, and that actually took care of kind of a lot of our underage uh, going into the year. So yes, there are places where we had to get smarter with negotiations, and then there were places where we had to cut, and there were places where we just had to find the money. You mentioned, and, and I'm not sure you want to call this out, but some transformation programs were either slowed down, delayed, or some had to stop. Anything that you'd be willing to kind of offer a little bit of insight into? Or... Our ITASC risk reduction effort, um, we were not able to go to as many bases as we wanted to go to. That was one. And that program has been very successful. The bases we've been to, um, the endpoints are so lightning fast. The IT service management solution is working well, automated workflows. Our network performance is so much better. So these are things that are proven that we are not able to scale as fast as we would like to um, within the risk reduction. And then there was a project called Compute and Store as a Service that I think would have uh, helped our cloud migrations go at a much faster pace and shut down our data centers at a much faster pace. And then there was the ESOC, which was actually a really successful experiment in a modern way to do a security operations center with uh, leveraging much more AI and automation and central data feeds than we did a few years ago. Now, the good news on both of those is we are incorporating the lessons learned from the little bit that we did as we scale. We do have an effort to move toward one global NOCSOC and GOC, leveraging a lot of those lessons learned. And then with Compute and Store, we have been working through race to the cloud with our large cloud vendors um, to help uh, migrate applications at a much faster rate. But you know, you don't make up for, for not having that investment you know, a year or two ago. Lauren Nausenberger is the outgoing Chief Information Officer of the Air Force, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, June 2nd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, meet a guy who's been keeping things running on Capitol Hill for 50 years. Plus, 
How about evidence-based policymaking not just for you, but for Congress? Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Department of Homeland Security is sketching out a new IT modernization plan this year. DHS has had its fair share of cost overruns and schedule delays, but its IT leaders say they've learned from past mistakes and they're charting out a new course. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with more. An agency that started in the Java era, not the COBOL era, if truth be told. What's their latest plan here, Justin? That's funny you mentioned that a lot of their IT, their CIOs still do COBOL programming or still can do COBOL programming. But yeah, they're saying that they're charting out a new course where they're not going to do, quote unquote, Big Bang IT programs anymore. And what that is, according to DHS Chief Information Officer Eric Heisen, is one of these large programs where you send a big package of requirements to a system integrator and then wait years for that integrator to deliver some big solution all at once. Uh, as we've heard with a lot of other agencies, they're moving to agile developments and they're not going to do those big bang projects anymore. Here's Heisen testifying before the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee this week. One of the results of uh, that big bang approach with single system integrators was that every IT system would build everything from the ground up. They would have their own infrastructure, their own support teams, uh, their own login systems, for example. And as we've uh, moved to modernize, we're looking to break that down, offer up common enterprise services for common pieces of functionality. That was the norm, uh, for example, when I worked in Silicon Valley, and enable each individual system to only focus on their unique functionality needs. Well, that's good to hear because the big bang, or they used to call it grand design, idea went out of business about 25 years ago. So it's good to see DHS catch up with the times before its own existence. And what kind of legacy technical debt does he feel still exists there? Yeah, this bears out in the numbers at DHS. They expect to spend approximately $10 billion on IT in 2023, and about 90% of that is for operating and maintaining existing systems, many of those legacy systems. GAO has reported on DHS's efforts to kind of modernize its IT systems over the years, and they say that DHS is taking promising steps to address a lot of these past issues. They've halted and suspended a lot of projects that have been going poorly, addressed a lot of recommendations, uh, documented their lessons learned, but GAO says they really have to continue driving forward on this issue. They can't lose focus. And what were some of the particular programs or mission areas that they say they want to revamp specifically here? One of the big ones is the Homeland Advanced Recognition Technology uh, Program, otherwise known as the HART program. It was launched in 2015 to replace DHS's legacy biometric information sharing system, but it's faced a series of delays and setbacks. It was supposed to be operational in 2020, and it breached that schedule. It is still not operational. Earlier this year, DHS's Acquisition Review Board actually launched a review of the HART program, and they're now going to a more iterative plan and refreshing the architecture, making some structural changes. Now they expect HART will reach initial operating capability at some point over the next two years. GAO's Kevin Walsh has been reporting on the HART program and its challenges. He's actually working on a new update to that right now. Here's what he has to say about some of the open issues around HART. Making sure that you involve your stakeholders, track your costs, and you know don't carte blanche except what the, the contractor gives you and tells you. HART is one of these big bang approaches. Yep. It is not one of these new, smaller, fail fast, get a, get a product out the door quick. So that is a problem. 
and that's the GAO's Kevin Walsh. Now, DHS has had trouble with its financial systems modernization. What's the latest there, Justin? Well, Heisen's uh, CIO team has been working with DHS's chief financial officer and, and that team to transition the financial systems modernization program away from that big bang thinking that we talked about earlier. This shift was really sparked by the Coast Guard's troubled transition to that financial system last year. The Coast Guard officially went live with it in January 2022, but then it faced months-long delays in making payments due to the problems with uh, that new system. So now DHS is working to really revamp that financial systems modernization program. They plan to more iteratively roll out improvements instead of doing one big rollout like is like what the Coast Guard did. And they're targeting uh, the end of 2023, fiscal 2023, to make some new contract awards for that program. And when agencies talk about modernizing and moving to agile development and all of these things, cloud and edge computing, you name it, zero trust, they often then in the next breath talk about the IT workforce that they have and can it handle these contemporary types of work. What did they say about that? Well, DHS has been focused on recruiting more skilled employees really across a range of technical competencies. Let's start with cyber. In 2021, DHS launched the Cyber Talent Management System really as a way to onboard employees outside of the traditional Title V competitive uh, pay and benefits system. They've brought 100 employees in under that CTMS program so far. That allows them to pay them a little bit more and, like I said, go around the traditional processes. DHS has also brought on board 25 employees under a customer experience hiring initiative that's really focused on these user experience kind of digital application type skills, people who maybe have designed applications in the past for people to use on their smartphones. Those are the type of folks that they're targeting under that CX hiring initiative. So far, 25 employees there. And then Heisen, the DHS CIO, says DHS wants to establish an IT academy as well to provide kind of a standardized training program for new hires, as well as upskilling opportunities for existing employees. Here he is. The IT workforce at DHS is a tremendous asset. We have over 5,000 talented and committed professionals. And so while we're also looking to bring in more talent from the private sector, we have opportunities and are focused on enabling our existing workforce to grow uh, and continue to increase their impact. And that's Eric Heisen, DHS's CIO. Well, they've got their work cut out for them. And as you say, GAO has been bird-dogging this. And the other big initiative, we talked about Zero Trust a little bit and DevSecOps. What about customer experience? DHS having anything going on in that particular front? Yeah, we talked about the CX hiring initiative to bring more people on board specifically to work on these issues. And DHS actually announced uh, that it met a goal to reduce the total amount of time the public spends accessing its services by 20 million hours annually over the past year. That's out of about 200 million hours annually, so they've cut into a pretty big chunk of a, of a very large amount of hours. But that's a pretty big deal for DHS, which is the agency that the public interfaces more with more than any other department out there. They did this by just simplifying online paperwork processes, doing automatic renewals, doing pre-population of forms, a lot of basic things 
One of the uh, examples is the Transportation Security Administration's Transportation Worker Identification Credential Program. They enabled online renewals, and that cut down massively on the number number of hours people have to spend going through that process. I guess they can measure time that outsiders are logged on through their websites, and that's how they come up with that 200 million hours. I think so. I, th- I think we don't know the exact uh, you know methods behind how they're measuring that, but you can certainly, with digital services and applications, measure that. Well, the old saying goes, you can't manage what you can't measure, so good for them. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. You're welcome. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how about evidence-based policymaking, not just for you, but for Congress? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.